Everybody loves a good mystery, right? Today, we are continuing our deep investigation into one of the biggest Bible mysteries of all time, the fascinating Shroud of Turin. the world's greatest unsolved mysteries, the Shroud of Turin. Millions believe this to be the image of Jesus. And so my question and the question that went through my mind at the time was why would a Jewish man want to get involved with this, what is probably, arguably, the most important relic of Christianity? Few objects in history have been so intensely studied or caused so much controversy as the Turin Shroud. French geophysicist Thierry Castex is trying to decode its mystery. He's one of a number of analysts who believe they've found hidden writing on the cloth. By using specialist imaging techniques, Castex detects traces of ancient languages. What connection is there between the Sudarium of Oviedo and the Holy Shroud of Turin? The head was usually bare, and so their outfit had to be completed with the Sudarium. Did both cloths cover the same body? Could the shroud have been contaminated in any way and so distort its true age? A new scientific study is questioning the claim that the Shroud of Turin is really the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. Published in this month's Journal of Forensic Sciences, the study concludes that the bloodstains are supposedly not consistent with those left by a crucifixion, meaning it's a fake. But long-standing shroud experts have slammed the results. They question the methodology since the authors didn't have access to the actual shroud. So as you can tell, even mainstream news outlets have covered the shroud for decades now. It is a fascinating, fascinating piece of history. Uh, before we get too deep into talking about that, I do want to tell you uh, that you can check out the show notes for this episode, which are very long and detailed at our website, BibleMysteryPod.com. That's BibleMysteryPod.com. It would be awesome if you'd go there, if you'd subscribe to the show, and if you would leave a review, especially on Apple Podcasts or even Google Podcasts. It really helps us out when people subscribe, when they share the show with friends, when they leave a great review. That is very helpful and encouraging. So thank you for doing that. Now, if you've been paying attention, it's been a couple of weeks since the last episode on the Shroud of Turin, our introductory episode. And here's the reason for the delay. I have been spending a lot, lot of time researching the Shroud of Turin. I thought I knew a lot about it at the beginning of this journey, but it turns out I did not. I was a rookie at best even though it is uh, an item I've read about for years and years. And part of the reason for the delay for why it took so long to put out this second episode is, I'll just be honest with you, when you're researching the Shroud in a serious way, it, it's, it's almost like listening to disagreements between Democrats or Republicans or Calvinists and Arminians or even Alabama and Auburn fans. The fact of the matter is, if one person offers an opinion, Somebody is very soon going to come along and refute that opinion in as passionate a way as possible. And, and there is so much back and forth, so much disagreement over the Shroud of Turin. It's almost mind-boggling, and it's honestly really difficult to get down to the facts because people are passionate about this thing. And, and it, it's just like a, a tremendous back and forth between scientists and researchers, etc. So we're going to be getting into all of that eventually. And hopefully we'll be able to make some calls on whether or not the preponderance of the evidence leads us to think that the shroud is genuine or not. I'll be honest with you. I've done the research, bought the books, read the uh, read the books, read the articles, researched throughout church history, listened to the podcast, watched the documentaries, and I don't know yet. And maybe after three or four more episodes of this, I'll still be scratching my head and telling you, guys, I just don't know. I'm not sure if it's genuine or not. And that'll be fine. I don't expect to uh, solve the mystery at all. But I do hope that at the end, there will be enough reason to say, hey, I think maybe it's the real thing. Or, hey, 
it really probably is just a medieval hoax. But before we get to the conclusion, we actually need to cover some bases. I think today's episode, it would be helpful to have a broad and wide view of the shroud, something that covers all the basics. It'll help us get on the same page. I think this is going to be a long episode, a deep episode. So let's call this episode an overview of the Shroud of Turin. We're going to talk about the history of the Shroud. We're going to talk about scientific uh, research into the Shroud. We're going to talk about why it's important. All of that kind of good stuff. And as I mentioned in the first episode, I first heard about the Shroud of Turin way back in the early 80s from good old Leonard Nimoy, Mr. Spock, on his show that he hosted called In Search Of. Locked in a cathedral in Turin, Italy, is the Holy Shroud. Millions of pilgrims have journeyed from around the earth to view what they believe is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. Today, scientists are using modern technology to investigate the authenticity of this ancient relic. A young skeptic, however, has come forward with a claim he can prove the shroud is a fraud. Is this the face of Christ or a forgery perpetrated by some unknown genius? Man, just hearing that clip, hearing Leonard Nimoy talk about the Shroud and that inimitable voice of his kind of brings chills to me. It was fascinating to my young mind and understanding that there might, just might possibly be an artifact from the time of Jesus, something that Jesus actually touched that could have survived to this day and even having a real picture of Jesus, who is inarguably the most famous person that ever lived. That possibility was mind-blowing to me when I was a kid, and it's mind-blowing to me as, as an adult now. So I read up on the Shroud as I grew older. Most of my Presbyterian church leaders that I went to church with, they didn't believe in the Shroud, or at least they didn't believe it. It was genuine. They dismissed it as a Catholic hoax, but I wasn't fully convinced. The fact of the matter is, once you see some pictures of the Shroud, and you begin to take it at least a little bit seriously... If the Shroud is a fake, I'll say this, it's a pretty amazing, remarkable fake. And the deeper you dig into the the Shroud and see the layers of, of things that are actually contained on that cloth, the more remarkable of a hoax it becomes, if it in fact, is a hoax. Okay, so helping us sort of develop a foundation of understanding what the shroud is. Let's let's do this. Let's let's uh, define some terms that you should know and that I should know in researching the shroud. So I've got a few terms here and some definitions I've written up. An icon, I C O N. What is an icon? An Icon is a religious work of art, which is usually a painting, but sometimes icons are statues or carvings or other sorts of artistic renderings. Most of the time, those pictured in icons are Jesus or Mary or other saints in the Bible. Some Christians, including many of our Reformed brothers and sisters, consider paintings of Jesus to be violations of the second commandment, of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. In other words, they believe that pictures, paintings, drawings, etc. of Jesus are a violation of that Second Commandment. Now, I think it's interesting if the Shroud of Turin is a painting or a drawing or a work of art or a, something created by human hands, obviously. And if the reformed understanding of the second commandment is correct, then I, that obviously would make it run afoul of the second commandment. But I wonder what they would think if it actually was not created by human hands, not a work of art, but is somehow, some way, the genuine burial cloth of Jesus created in a uh, supernatural way. I don't know. There's no easy way to answer that question. But we do know the oldest surviving icon or religious work of art of Jesus that dates from the 500s is uh, a really interesting painting that if you go to our website, BibleMysteryPod.com, you can see a picture of it. It is a figure of Jesus with a halo around his head, a somber look on his face, arms raised. His uh, his hands look... Um, 
very brown skin. His skin looks very white skinned, which is not historically accurate. Jesus was not a white guy. He was a Middle Eastern Jewish man with olive skin. Uh, the figure in this icon has a beard and a mustache and dark black hair, which I do think is actually fairly accurate. So that's what a, an icon is. Term number two, stirp. Yes, I said stirp. S-T-U-R-P. STIRP is actually an acronym, and it stands for Shroud of Turin Research Project. In the late 70s and early 80s, a team of approximately three dozen scientists joined together to do some research on the shroud. Some of the researchers were chemists, some were forensic pathologists, photography experts, aerospace engineers, biophysicists, optical physicists, nuclear engineers, and more. They came from some pretty notable institutions like the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Los Alamos, Lockheed, Los Angeles County Museum, multiple universities, uh, Brooks Institute of Photography, U.S. Air Force Weapons Laboratory, several hospitals, the New England Institute, some coroner's offices, the Air Force Academy, IBM, and others. These were extremely educated and highly respected scientists, but critics have noted that the team included no textiles expert nor a medieval art expert. In a few moments, we will summarize the findings of STIRP. Third term you need to know. No, this is a historical term. The House of Savoy. The House of Savoy was one of the major political families of Europe, and it produced several kings of Italy, a Spanish king, and several other royal uh, minors. A Savoy king was in power and actually chose to look the other way in the 20th century when fascism and Benito Mussolini came to power in Italy. And uh, even though Mussolini was doing all these terrible horrible things, uh, the Savoy king that was in charge at that time just didn't stop him, even though technically he had the power to do so. That led to the downfall of the House of Savoy. The House of Savoy was an important political family in Europe from the 1000s right up into the 20th century. And the reason they're important here is the House of Savoy were caretakers and owners of the Shroud of Turin for hundreds of years, literally from the 1400s before Columbus discovered uh, the Americas until 19. 83. Next term, syndenology. Syndenology, S-I-N-D-O-N-O-L-O-G-Y. Not the study of sin, but the scientific study of the Shroud of Turin. A shroud, shroud expert is often referred to as a syndenologist. Next term, and it features one of my favorite words to say in all of the world, the image of Edessa or the Mandelian. The Mandelian uh, and the image of Edessa are the same things, essentially. The uh, Eastern Orthodox Church call this uh, piece of cloth the Mandelian. A lot of other people call it the image of Edessa. Because I like Mandelian so much, I think I'll say it a lot. Uh, Spelling-wise, Mandelian, it looks like Mandelion, M-A-N-D-Y-L-I-O-N. It's one of the more fascinating relics of ancient history. Some people consider the Mandelian uh, one and the same with the shroud. That's why it's important here. Basically, according to the ancient church historian Eusebius, who lived in the late 200s and early 300s, Thaddeus, either the Thaddeus that was a disciple or the Thaddeus that was a one of the twelve, the apostles of Jesus, met with an early first century king of Edessa named Abgar or Abgarus, who converted to Christianity after Thaddeus prayed for him to be healed. While Eusebius himself does not mention an icon or work of religious art being given to Abgar, a document that was written in the 400s called The Doctrine of Adai, records that Abgar also received a divine picture of Jesus. In the 500s, a few years later, Evagrius Scholasticus wrote that Edessa possessed a picture of Jesus that had a divine origin. 
supposedly that picture, uh, or at least its uh, presence in the city, miraculously helped the city defend itself from a Persian invasion in 544 AD. Unfortunately, the same couldn't be said for 609 AD when the city of Edessa was sacked by the Sasanians, and the image of Edessa, or the Mandelian, disappeared from Edessa at that time. According to a lot of people, there's a bit of dispute there. The Mandelian reemerged in Constantinople shortly afterward. There are some authors and researchers, uh, researchers, including Ian Wilson, who's written several books on the Shroud. They believe the Mandelian and the Shroud are one and the same. And Wilson notes that a codex from the 900s, which was unearthed in the Vatican Library, itself contained an account from the 700s, which claimed that an imprint of the whole body of Jesus was left on a canvas which was kept in a church in Edessa. A man is quoted in that codex from the 700s who says, King Abgar received a cloth on which one can see not only a face, but the whole body. And that document is one of the reasons why a lot of people think the Mandelian and the Shroud of Turin are the same thing. Now, the Mandelian is merely a picture of the face of Jesus, at least according to most of recorded history it is. But those who think the Shroud of Turin and the Mandelian are conflated will say, well, the history of the Mandelian goes back into at least the 700s, maybe the 600s or the 500s, and and they will say that the reason why the face of Jesus in the Mandelian is is mentioned more often is because it's it is the shroud, but it was folded in quarters so that when it was in its display box, you could only see the face of the figure in the shroud. Now, I'm not sure about that, but I do think there is the possibility that the Mandelian and the Shroud are the same item of textile, and we'll go into some reasons to believe that in a later episode when we look at some of the Constantinople Byzantine art from around the 900s that looks remarkably like the figure in the Shroud. That's one of the reasons why I think the Shroud might well be older than what the 1988 carbon dating showed it was because there is some art that exists uh, from the 900s and prior that looks really, really a lot like the figure in the shroud. All right, the next thing we need to know about, the Sodarium of Oviedo. It, and I probably butcher the pronunciation of that, Oviedo is a city in Spain. The sidarium is a bloodstained piece of cloth that measures just under three feet by two feet. It's housed in a cathedral in Oviedo, Spain, and it has a definite history dating back to the 500s AD, maybe older than that. That cloth was also radiocarbon dated, and it was radiocarbon dated to the 700s, but because the cloth has a real history that seems to go back to the 500s or further, some thought that oil on the cloth could have caused a dating discrepancy. According to tradition, dating back to 570 AD at the least, the sidarium is said to be the face cloth of Jesus or the cloth that the Bible mentions in a couple of different places that was wrapped around the head of Jesus. Finally, the veil of Veronica. The veil of Veronica is said to be a cloth that was used to wipe the face of Jesus when he was carrying the cross to Golgotha. There is a document from the 300s uh, called the Acts of Pilate, or some people call it the Gospel of Nicodemus. It was written by neither Nicodemus or Pilate. It was uh, a pseudonymous document, Uh, but it was written around 350 AD, so it's very ancient, and it records that a woman named Veronica wiped the face of Jesus with a cloth when he was carrying the cross. Much later, medieval legend, you know, getting into the 12, 13, 1400s, records that the face of Jesus was somehow imprinted onto that cloth that Veronica used to wipe the face of Jesus. Very interesting, and there's actually some uh, pictures of Jesus that date back to quite old that 
Some consider to be the Vale of Veronica, uh, but they have different names and nobody really is sure what happened to the Vale of Veronica or obviously whether it's a legitimate item of history or not that it really does have the face of Jesus on it. Uh, but it's, it's interesting. And, and when you begin to study the shroud, one thing you'll find that surprised me a little bit is that there are a lot more of these items that uh, purport to contain miraculous images of Jesus than what you realize. The shroud, in a sense, is not unique in that way. So what we'll, what we'll do today with that uh, understanding of our vocabulary to help us, we're going to answer four big questions today in our overview about the shroud. Four big questions. Number one, what exactly is the shroud? So the Shroud of Turin is a linen cloth that is 14 and a half feet long and three feet seven inches wide. It has a somewhat faded negative image of a man on it. Essentially think of the image like a photo negative. The areas of dark and light are reversed. The darkest areas of the imprint of the man in the shroud appear light and vice versa. The weave of the shroud is a fine herringbone twill weave. Now, I'm not an expert on textiles, but most experts that I've read seem to think that such a weave would have been possible and used in first century Middle Eastern areas, although it is an advanced sort of weave that was done with quite a bit of skill. Like all things related to the shroud, that is debatable that this particular kind of herringbone weave could have been used in the first century is debatable. The burial cloth of Jesus is indeed listed in the scriptures, so we know that the body of Jesus was actually wrapped in a linen cloth, according to the Bible. There's not enough of a description of that cloth to know whether or not the shroud is similar to it, and as many have pointed out, there is no scripture whatsoever that seems to indicate some kind of miraculous imprint of Jesus was left on the burial cloth. To be fair, there's no scripture to indicate that the disciples examined those cloths either, only that they saw them. Considering that there's very little information in scripture about what happened directly after the resurrection of Jesus, and that most of the information that is in there about what happened after the resurrection of the Jesus is related to the Great Commission and Jesus sending the disciples out into the world, I don't think it's a very strong argument from silence to say that because the Bible doesn't mention something miraculous regarding the burial cloths of Jesus, therefore it did not happen. Now, here's a couple of scriptures from the Gospel of John that talk about the burial cloth of Jesus. First, John 19, verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Then they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the aromatic spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and a new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been laid in it. So Jesus was wrapped in linen cloths. There were lots of myrrh and aloes and spices and things like that, which will come into play here in the next few episodes as we examine what else is on the shroud other than blood and an imprint of, of the figure of a man. Um, and Jesus was wrapped in that shroud and put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Now, according to the Bible, uh, Jesus rose from the dead three days after he was laid in that tomb. And John 20 talks about that and also mentions the burial cloths of Jesus. John 20 verse 1, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, so she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading to the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter came also. 
he entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, then entered the tomb, saw and believed, for they still did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, a couple of things you notice there. One, it seems the writer of the Gospel of John, John the Disciple, really makes a big deal about these burial cloths. And two, there are two of them. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people, beginning with uh, John Calvin, and really actually beginning with a guy we're going to talk about later, Bishop Darcy, uh, there, there's this is the reason why a lot of people believe the shroud is not legit, because it's a one-piece thing, and the Bible says that there are two pieces of burial cloths that, that cover Jesus. So the figure on the shroud is interesting. He's tall significantly taller than the average Jewish man of the first century, which was, according to different sources, a little bit shorter than the average American or Western male today, somewhere between 5'2 and 5'5. The shroud figure appears to be anywhere from around 5'8 to 6'2, with a figure in the range of 5'11 to 6 feet to appearing to be most likely. The man in the shroud is well built. He's quite muscular, has a beard, shoulder length hair, and a mustache. Interestingly enough, from the back, it appears he has some type of ponytail, or at least his hair is wrapped in some sort of tassel, which is interesting. The shroud is in excellent condition for its age, but not mint condition because it survived numerous fires and movings and touchings, etc. It has some scars and singeing from the fires. There were 14 large patches and 16 or so smaller patches that were sawn onto the shroud to repair it in the 1530s. And all of those patches were, interestingly enough, removed in 2002 by a restoration team who sewed the shroud onto a new cloth backing. So, here's a big question. What is the history of the shroud? How did we come to know about this interesting item? I might end up doing a whole episode on the history of the shroud because it's quite complex and very, very, very disputed. Amongst the difficulties in determining The real history of the shroud is the lack of photographic and artistic evidence that documents it and the fact that there are, as I mentioned earlier, more than one burial cloths that are claimed to be the burial cloth of Jesus. As you might know, you might have heard, the medieval period was very focused on biblical relics and there were a lot of unscrupulous people, pastors, churchmen, salesmen, etc., profiting from displaying supposed pieces of the true cross, finger bones of the apostles, toe bones of biblical figures, grails used at the Last Supper, etc. Many who believe that the shroud is genuine believe that the history of it can be traced all the way back to the image of Edessa, which was supposedly given to King Abgar of Edessa by Thaddeus, as we mentioned earlier. The connection between the shroud and the image of Edessa or the Mandelian is fairly tenuous, historically speaking, and so we won't discuss it quite yet. Now, most people would say the indisputed history of the shroud dates back to the 1300s. In the 1300s, there was a knight. His name was Geoffrey de Charnay. He was a well-known, well-liked, honorable French knight. He was a great warrior. He actually wrote three books on chivalry, which is kind of cool. He served King Jean II. He was a founding member of the Order of the Star, and he carried the Oriflamme into battle. The what, you say? Well, the Oriflamme was the royal battle standard, or the flag, of the French army, and it was a significant honor to be the knight who carried the banner into battle. It is a really cool banner flag. It it's looks like fire. If you want to see a picture of it, like I said earlier, you can check out this article, the show notes article, on our website, BibleMysteryPod.com. Descharnay was killed by five English knights in the 1356 Battle of Poitiers against the English, and his king was taken into captive. A contemporary historian, Jean-Francois, describes Descharnay's fall in that battle, and maybe Francois uses a little bit of uh, 
of license here. Maybe not, but it, it's a pretty interesting story. He says this, there Geoffrey de Charnay fought gallantly near the king and his 14-year-old son. The whole press and cry of battle were upon him because he was carrying the king's sovereign banner, the Oriflamme. He also had before him his own banner, which was red with three white shields. So many English and Gascons, they're, they're people, they're Frenchmen from the northeast part of France. So many French, English and Gascons came around him from all sides. I'm sorry, the northwest part of France, northwest Gascons. They came around him from all sides that they cracked open the king's battle formation and smashed it. There were so many that at least five of these men-at-arms attacked one French gentleman. Sir Geoffrey de Charny was killed with the banner of France in his hand as other French banners fell to earth. So... The real, sounds like some real life kind of Game of Thrones material. Desharni was obviously a pretty amazing person. There's some question about how he might have come to acquire the shroud, which we'll go into a little bit later, but he apparently owned the shroud or acquired it somehow. And one of the first indisputed images of the shroud comes from a pilgrimage of Lyre, metal, uh, Lyre, pilgrimage of Lyre, metal, that dates back to de Charnay's time and de Charnay's area. So, give you a bit of further insight into the man, Geoffrey de Charnay, the first owner of the shroud that's sort of undisputed. You, we can go back to a record of what happened right before the Battle of Poitiers, which this was the Battle of Poitiers, if you don't remember your history, was a big battle in the Hundred Years' War between the English and the French. Uh, lots of people were killed, lots of bloodshed. There was an English knight that was there named John Chando, who records an interesting meeting that happened before the Battle of Poitiers that Geoffrey de Charnay uh, was, played a prominent role in. And so Chandos kind of tells this story that the king, to prolong the matter and put off battle, assembled and brought together all the barons of both sides. The king made a speech and the count, the count of Tankerville was there. The archbishop of Sins was there. Um, de Charnay was there. Beausacroix was there and Clermont. All these were there for the council of the King of France. On the other side, there was the Earl of Warwick, the Earl of Suffolk, and Bartholomew de Burgess, most privy to the prince, says uh, John Chandos, and Audelay and Chandos, who also were there. They were there, and they held parliament, and there was a meeting. Each one spoke his mind. And supposedly after that, when they couldn't settle their disagreements, Geoffrey de Charnay said this, Lords, since, since it is so that this treaty pleases you no more, I make offer that we fight you a hundred against a hundred, choosing each front one from his own side and know well, whichever hundred be discomfited, all the others know for sure shall quit this field and let the quarrel be done. I think that, w that it will be best so and that God will be gracious to us if the battle be avoided in which so many valiant men will be slain. In other words, what Decharny was proposing is that a hundred Brits and a hundred Frenchmen line up and fight, and whoever wins that battle wins the whole thing, rather than thousands on thousands with tons of bloodshed. Unfortunately, Decharny's, uh Proposal was not accepted, and the Battle of Poitiers was a significant fight with lots of loss of life. So, de Charnay had the shroud. It passed to his son upon his death, and when de Charnay's son, also Geoffrey de Charnay, died, he passed it to his daughter. Uh, and the, the de Charnay family had it until 1453, when they transferred it to the house of Savoy, which was a royal family in northern Italy. In 1389, a bishop named Pierre d'Arcy actually wrote about the shroud and said, interestingly enough, that it was a fake. I'm going to quote from his letter, a pretty long, good quote to give you an idea of what Bishop Darcy said about this. But then I'm going to give you some, some reasons why I think his conclusion 
may not be a hundred percent convincing to us the shroud is a fake. So he writes a letter to the anti-pope in uh, Avignon at the time. And this is what he says. The case, Holy Father, stands thus. Sometime since in this diocese of Troyes, the dean of a certain collegiate church, to wit that of Loray, falsely and deceitfully being consumed with the passion of avarice or extreme greed, and not from any motive of devotion, but only a financial gain, procured for his church a certain cloth cunningly painted upon which by a clever sleight of hand was depicted the twofold image of one man, that is to say, the back and front. He falsely declaring and pretending this was the actual shroud in which our Savior Jesus Christ was enfolded in the tomb and upon which the whole likeness of the Savior had remained thus impressed together with the wounds of which he bore. This story was put out not only in the kingdom of France, but so to speak throughout the whole world, so that from all parts people came together to view it, and further to attract the multitude so that money might be cunningly wrung from them, pretended miracles were worked, certain men being hired to represent themselves as healed at the moment of the exhibition of the shroud, which all believed to be the shroud of our Lord. Lord Henry of Poitiers, of pious memory, then the Bishop of Troyes, who was uh, Darcy's successor, became, predecessor that is, became aware of this and urged by many prudent persons to take action, as indeed was his duty in the exercise of his ordinary jurisdiction, set himself earnestly to work to fathom the truth of this matter. For many theologians and other wise persons declared that this could not be the real shroud of our Lord, having the Savior's likeness thus imprinted upon it, since the Holy Gospel made no mention of any such imprint. While, if it had been true, it was quite unlikely likely that the evangelists, in other words, the authors of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the evangelists would have omitted to record it, or the fact that, or that the fact should have remained hidden until the present time. Eventually, after diligent inquiry and examination, my predecessor, the bishop, discovered the fraud and how the said cloth had been cunningly painted, the truth being attested by the artist who had painted it to wit that it was a work of human skill and not miraculously wrought or bestowed. Accordingly, after taking mature counsel with wise theologians and men of the law, seeing that he neither ought nor could allow the matter to pass, he began to institute formal proceedings against the said dean and his accomplices in order to root out this false persuasion. They, seeing their wickedness discovered, hid away said cloth so that the ordinary, or the Pope, or the, the leader of the church, in this case the ordinary, could not find it, and they kept it hidden afterwards for 34 years or thereabouts down to the present year. So, uh, that memorandum, by the way, is much longer than that. You can see a copy of it on our website, BibleMysteryPod.com, and uh, it's pretty interesting. It uh, is a strong condemnation. It is strong evidence against the authenticity of the shroud. And you'll notice even in the 1300s that if you read the whole memorandum that Bishop Darcy wrote, there's two really strong arguments he makes. One, he says, if the shroud were really a thing, wouldn't people in the Bible have mentioned that the imprint of Jesus was on the burial cloths? And the second thing he mentions, and it's later on in the memorandum, is that that the Bible indicates there are two burial cloths and the shroud is simply one burial cloth. So that's pretty strong. And it's pretty strong that way back in the 1300s, at the beginning of the recorded history of the shroud, uh, there is a bishop that is saying this thing is a fake. Now, normally you would almost consider that to be enough to dispel any hope that the shroud is authentic. But I will say this, I am I am not completely convinced by Darcy's memorandum for three reasons. Maybe you are and maybe that's okay, but here's my three reasons. Number one, Darcy's memo uh, mentions that the Leray shroud was painted 
and the painter confessed to it. But the problem is, according to multiple chemical analysis of the shroud as it is now, it shows no evidence or sign whatsoever of being painted or drawn or pigmented in any way, and it has been carefully analyzed and chemically analyzed for paint. Number two, second reason why I don't find Darcy's memo completely convincing. There are several other documents of the same time period that actually dispute what is in Darcy's memorandum. For instance, he claims that his predecessor had the shroud removed because it was a fake, but other documents from the same time period actually say that the shroud was removed and put in another a castle for protection because there was a lot of raiding and war nearby. It's possible. It's not proven. It's possible that the Darcy memo was motivated by political issues or perhaps by jealousy or competing relic or something like that. Because you got to remember, Darcy was the Bishop of Troyes. That is not a city. That's not the city where the shroud was being displayed. The, the shroud was being displayed in a different chapel in La Rey. And Troyes was not getting a lot of attention. Could it be that Darcy was upset about that? He says in his letter, he complains to the antipope in his letter that the Loray leadership has procured this shroud, quote, for his church. In other words, he's saying, hey, this pastor or this priest of this church over here has this thing and it's benefiting him. Maybe Darcy is not so much concerned about the authenticity of the shroud, but the fact that lots of people are going to Loray to see it and not coming to Troyes to see him. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that's a real possibility. Darcy's letter claims he is not writing for competitive purposes, but it's easy to see why a bishop of a nearby town maybe himself lacking a profound relic, might be opposed to the shroud drawing crowds elsewhere. Now, that said, I certainly appreciate, if it's genuine, Darcy's anti-profit and anti-swindling the fateful stance. And honestly, I wish more churchmen of the time held to that kind of stance. The, the, there's so much history of the church using these relics, 99% of them probably fake, to get people to give money and to draw people in. And that's not what the gospel is. That's not what the message of Jesus was about. Come see artifacts. If you're a Christian, and I'm a Christian, we serve a living God. We don't have to show you the finger bone of Paul to get you to come to church. And by the way, that's kind of weird and gross anyway. I don't know that that would really work that well. Although that sort of thing did apparently work in the Middle Ages. All right, final reason why I'm not fully persuaded by this memo of Bishop Darcy. It's unsigned, it's unsealed, and it's not found in any of the official Vatican records. That could indicate that it was never sent to the antipope, although maybe some research shows that it was. So the fact that the memo was unsigned and unsealed is weird, however. Does that mean that Darcy did some more investigation and he reconsidered the authenticity of the shroud? Later on, the Pope, the anti-pope wrote Darcy back and said, don't you do anything to silence or, or mess around with the shroud. Just let it go. Obviously, it's a paraphrase, but Darcy was ordered not to protest against the shroud by the anti-pope and Avignon. And by the way, an anti-pope is, uh, is sort of like, uh, you know, the whole, he's not my president thing. Well, this has happened throughout history where a pope was elected and a certain group of people said, not my pope. We're going to have another pope. So this happened in the, uh, it's ha happened multiple times throughout history. It happened in the 1300s that the people of France were opposed to the pope in Italy. So they elected their own pope, the anti-pope, and they put him on the throne in Avignon, France. So that's what's going on there. All right. So continuing the history of the shroud, 1418. Geoffrey de Charnay's granddaughter, Margaret, married a guy named Humbert of Villersexel, which I know I'm not saying that right, but it is an interesting name. He was the 
Count de la Roche. He was a significant noble. He had his own castle. One month later, the leaders of the chapel at Le Ray, where the shroud was being kept, temporarily gave it to Count Humbert for safekeeping at his castle, Montfort. Humbert died in 1438, and interestingly enough, Margaret de Charnay doesn't seem like she wants to give it back to the chapel at Loray. They tried to sue her to get her to give it back, but she wouldn't do it. She took the shroud with her on a tour of France. It was shown in several different cities in France, and in 1460, she died. And having not given the shroud back. 1464, a Savoy duke who was related to Margaret agrees to essentially pay the ch- chapel at Le Ray a yearly stipend, and it appears that this is in exchange for the shroud. So essentially, it looks like Duke Louis I of Savoy buys the shroud with money, uh, a yearly stipend to the chapel at Le Ray. Now, he doesn't always pay that stipend, but essentially what happens is for the next several hundred years, the Savoy family now owns the shroud. Now, they primarily kept it in Saint-Chapelle, which was a chapel, not Saint-Chapelle in Paris, but Saint-Chapelle in a city in uh, southeast France called Chambray. It was the capital city of the Savoy region. Now, the the shroud was not always kept in Saint-Chapelle. It also toured around France in the 1400s and northern Italy. And a few times, including in 1473, it was showcased in Turin, which would eventually become its home. Unfortunately, 1532, Saint-Chapelle disaster happens. There's a massive fire in the cathedral, in the the chapel where the shroud is kept, and men heroically rush in to try to save the shroud. By the way, that's something that's happened multiple times in church history. The, the, The place where the shroud was being held is caught on fire, and people risk their lives to save it. It even happened in the 1900s. But in 1532, they managed to get to the case that holds the shroud, but it has been seriously damaged and super hot by the fire, and it has four locks on it. So they have a very difficult time getting it open. When they do, the shroud is scorched and molten silver has melted through the shroud. It was folded and so it melted a hole into the shroud. Fortunately, none of the main areas of the shroud are messed up by this fire damage. And the Sisters of Poor Clary, who uh, was a group of nuns tasked with caretaking of the shroud, they repair it in 1534 and they sew a new backing onto it, which was known as the Holland cloth. A few decades later, 1578, the shroud was taken to Turin with great fanfare by the Savoy family. When it arrived, there was a rifle salute to greet it. And a few months later, a crowd of 40,000 people in one day came to see the shroud. And with only a few exceptions, the shroud has remained in Turin from now, from 1478 to the, I'm sorry, 1578 to the present time, which is pretty interesting. It's been there for a long time. All right. Next section. What have scientific tests shown so far about the shroud? I got to tell you, this is this is probably the most controversial question of all that we're going to deal with when we delve into the shroud, because the fact is there's been many, many scientific inquiries into the shroud. And for today, since we're just doing an overview, I'm only going to focus on two of those inquiries. Sterp's research from the 1970s, the late 1970s, and then the radiocarbon dating from 1988. Let's start with that one since everybody knows the shroud was dated to medieval times and it was definitively proved a hoax. So April 1988, a very small portion of the shroud was very carefully cut off from the edge. That portion ended up being right around three inches long and a little over half an inch wide. So about six tenths of an inch wide. 
That strip itself was cut in half and the Vatican took half of it and they stored it away for future testing. The remaining strip, which was an inch and a half long and a little over half an inch wide, was itself divided into three parts and sent to three separate labs, one in Arizona, one in Oxford, England, and one in Switzerland. All three labs came back with results that were very similar, and the consensus was that the shroud material dated from somewhere between the 1200s and the 1300s, which for most people proved the shroud to be a medieval hoax. However, as with everything shroud-wise, there have been many criticisms, many, many criticisms of the original testing. Noted chemist Ray Rogers, who was a member of STERP and has examined the shroud perhaps more than any other any other person, he has written and published one of the more interesting challenges, noting that the chemical vanillin was readily found in the samples of the shroud used for radiocarbon dating, but completely absent from other parts of the main body of the shroud. In other words, there was vanillin on the outer edges of the shroud, if I'm understanding Roger's work correctly, and I hope I am. It's pretty way above my head. There was vanillin on the outer edges of the shroud, but not on the inner part of the shroud. And uh, so Rogers claimed in the scientific journal Thermochemica Acta, quote, the fact that vanillin cannot be detected in the lignin on shroud fibers, Dead Sea Scrolls, linen, and other very old linens indicate that the shroud is quite old. A determination of the kinetics of vanillin loss suggests that the shroud is between 1300 and 3000 years old. Even allowing for errors in the measurements and assumptions about storage conditions, the cloth is highly unlikely to be as young as 840 years old. Now, vanillin dating is a different kind of dating than radiocarbon dating. It's pretty controversial. Not everybody agrees it's accurate, but I think most everybody agrees that Ray Rogers was a, uh, he's dead now, but he was a significantly important, well-educated, well-respected chemist. I myself am not a chemist. I'm not a textile expert, so I don't understand uh, textile chemistry nearly well enough to, to dispute or confirm Rogers' findings, but they're certainly intriguing. Even just a few weeks ago, more recently, a, a researcher named Tristan Casabianca, he is an attorney, he found that the 1988 carbon dating was unreliable as only pieces from the edges of the cloth were radiocarbon tested. Many scholars believe that the shroud, particularly the edge parts, might have been compromised significantly by several of the fires that have impacted it, especially the 1532 fire we talked about. That fire, as well as centuries of display and handling and cases and that sort of thing, in their view, could have radically altered the results from the radiocarbon dating. Casabianca, uh, as a lawyer, he filed a freedom of inquiry, uh, freedom of information inquiry into the original 1988 radiocarbon testing of the shroud at the British, by the British Museum in Oxford. And after he went through all of those original documents, he wrote, the tested samples are obviously heterogeneous from many different dates. There's no guarantee that all these samples taken from one end of the shroud are representative of the whole fabric. It is therefore impossible to include th conclude that the Shroud of Turin dates from the Middle Ages. A shroud researcher who reviewed Casabianca's findings, uh, a guy named Russ Brialt, says this, This tells us there's something anomalous with the single sample used to date the shroud. This is something that we've long suspected because the corner chosen was absolutely the most handled area of the cloth, exactly where it was held up by hand for hundreds of public exhibitions over the century. If you were looking for the worst possible location to take a sample from, you would choose one of the two outside corners, which is right where the sample was cut in 1988. So that's interesting. But that said, 
it should be considered here that no scientist that I am aware of that I've researched who specializes in radiocarbon dating has raised significant questions about the method of dating used in the 1988 testing. That said, the very fact that the shroud has unquestionably been damaged several times and unquestionably been repaired several times in the Middle Ages, uh, and especially on the outer edges, does make me think that it's possible somehow, some way, that this radiocarbon testing could be mm, maybe not as accurate as it could be. And I think you can probably understand why the Vatican is hesitant to go into the center of the Shroud of Turin and cut a piece out of that. But I eventually hope that's what happens. I hope the, the article is tested again. Now, STIRP. 1978, the three dozen scientists I mentioned earlier, the ones who really did in-depth work on the shroud, they had tons of access to it. They performed dozens, if not hundreds, of different tests on it. They wrote a really long report of their findings. I'm not going to read the whole report, but I think the summary of their report, the very ending of the summary of their 1978 report, that they wrote together is worth reading here. So here, here it goes. No pigments, paints, dyes, or stains have been found on the fibrils. X-ray fluorescence and microchemistry on the fibrils of the shroud preclude the possibility of paint being used as a method for creating the image. Ultraviolet and infrared evaluation confirm these studies. Computer image enhancement and analysis by a device known as a VP8 image analyzer show that the image on the shroud has unique three-dimensional information encoded in it. Microchemical evaluation has indicated no evidence of any spices, oils, or any biochemicals known to be produced by the body in life or in death. It is clear that there has been a direct contact of the shroud with a body which explains certain features such as scourge marks as well as the blood. However, while this type of contact might explain some of the features of the torcho, torso, it is totally incapable of explaining the image of the face with the high resolution that has been amply demonstrated by photography. The basic problem from a scientific point of view is that some explanations which might be tenable from a chemical point of view are precluded by physics. Contrarywise, certain physical explanations which may be attractive are completely precluded by the chemistry. For an adequate explanation for the image of the shroud, one must have an explanation which is scientifically sound from a physical, chemical, biological, and medical viewpoint. At the present, this type of solution does not appear to be obtainable by the best efforts of the members of the shroud team. Furthermore, experience... Experiments in physics and chemistry with old linen have failed to reproduce adequately the phenomenon presented by the Shroud of Turin. The scientific consensus is that the image was produced by something which resulted in oxidation, dehydration, and conjugation of the polysaccharide structure of the microfibrils of the linen itself. Such changes can be duplicated in the laboratory by certain chemical and physical processes. A similar type of change in linen can be obtained by sulfuric acid or heat. However, there are no chemical or physical methods known which can account for the totality of the image. Nor can any combination of physical, chemical, biological, or medical circumstances explain the image adequately. Thus, the answer to the question of how the image was produced or what produced the image remains now, as it has in the past, a mystery. We can conclude for now that the shroud image is that of a real human form of a scourged, crucified man. It is not the product of an artist. The blood stains are composed of hemoglobin and also give a positive test for serum albumin. The image is an ongoing mystery and until further chemical studies are made, perhaps by this group of scientists or perhaps by some scientists in the future, the problem remains unsolved. 
And that is a pretty interesting conclusion by a really preeminent group of scientists that were gathered to have almost unfettered access to the shroud in the late 70s. They essentially concluded that it's very difficult to imagine a way that they, using modern technology or especially somebody using medieval technology, could figure out a way to reproduce the shroud in its fullness. Others, you know, people have produced an image that's similar to the shroud, but not that has all the other characteristics of the shroud. So interesting conclusion by the Sturp people. Final question. We're almost done. Why care? Why care about the shroud? It doesn't prove anything one way or the other about Jesus. So in my mind, it's not a crucial artifact and certainly shouldn't be used to prove or disprove somebody's faith. If the shroud is ultimately proved to be a hoax, how big of a deal is that? And I would say this, religiously speaking, Christian speaking, speaking as a pastor, it's not a big deal at all. None of the Christian faith rests on the Shroud of Turin being genuine. While it is true that the burial cloth of Jesus is mentioned, like we said a few times in the Bible, it's not given any particular attention, and no central or tertiary claims of Christianity rest on the Shroud. On the other hand, what if somehow, someway, the Shroud was proven to be the genuine burial cloth of Jesus? I think that would be a massively huge deal, but it wouldn't be a religiously huge deal. Here's what I mean by that. If the shroud could be authenticated, then what we would have is a cloth that was actually wrapped around the single most important and well-known person in all of history. Not only that, we would have a near photograph of Jesus. We would know his size. We would know what he looked like. That would be incredible. It would be awesome to know for sure whether or not it was the, the shroud was genuine. But what would its genuineness prove? Well, it would prove, I guess, that Jesus existed. And there are some people out there, uh, I'm looking at you, YouTube skeptics. There's some people out there who doubt the existence of Jesus. But some people also doubt the moon landing and many other obvious facts of history. But almost no serious scholar denies that Jesus existed. Would a genuine shroud prove the resurrection of Jesus, which is the central claim of Christianity, without which Christianity makes no sense? Of course it would. The shroud could never prove the central claim of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus. How could it? I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. I wrote a book about it, Easter Fact or Fiction. It has 20 reasons why I believe Jesus rose from the dead and why you should consider it too. I recommend you read the book. Heck, if you email me, I might send you a free copy of it. And I have more reasons since I've written that book that I hope to add to an expanded edition. I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. But the shroud is not going to prove that one way or the other. It's an amazing historical artifact, whether or not it's proved genuine, but it is not an amazing focus of faith. For instance, John 5, Jesus strongly challenged the people who were following him. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they, the scriptures, who bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's a challenging verse, and I think it has some application in this situation. The shroud is an amazing artifact, but it is not capable of saving people from their sins. It should not be an object of religious veneration. I mean, how how silly is that? Can you imagine Jesus coming into a chapel where people are there um crying and passing out and, and lifting their hands and worshiping his tunic? or his sandals, or his burial cloth. Those things are interesting, fascinating even, but they can't save you. I I have uh, some very, I believe the Mandelian is a very interesting historical possibility, fascinated by it, but I guarantee you the Mandelian had nothing to do with Edessa avoiding capture by the Persians in the 500s. It's a piece of, piece of cloth. It has no power. There's power in Jesus. There's no power in cloth. All veneration and honor should go to Jesus. That said, the shroud is still, if genuine, 
one of the most amazing pieces of history in the world. And even if it's not genuine, it is an amazing, incredible, impressive, mind-blowing hoax. That's uh, that's just unbelievable that somebody in the Middle Ages could have manufactured such a thing. So the shroud, amazing, awesome, five stars. But we shouldn't worship it. We shouldn't worship it. We shouldn't cry when we see it. We shouldn't trample over people trying to go see it. We shouldn't venerate it. But there's nothing wrong with being interested and fascinated by it. All right, that's it for this episode. Next episode, our third episode on the Shroud, we are going to do some myth busting. Wait a minute, that might be copyrighted. Uh, We are going to try to break up some misconceptions that people have about the Shroud. I'm hopeful to have that episode released in the next few days so that there's not a long delay. Most of it's already written, and writing the episode takes a lot longer than recording it. So most of it's already there. Stay tuned. Subscribe. Tell a friend. I appreciate you listening to me go on and on for over an hour about this fascinating thing of history. I'd love to hear from you. You can do so uh, via social media. I'm Chase A. Thompson almost everywhere. The Bible Mystery Pod has a Twitter at Bible Mystery Pod. I'm at Chase A. Thompson on Twitter. Our website is BibleMysteryPod.com. Please do leave us a review and all that kind of stuff that podcasters say at the end of podcasts. I'm out of things to say. My voice is almost completely shot. You've been awesome to stay tuned this long. We will see you shortly. Thanks for listening to the show. Over and out. <laughs>